Well, morning this morning. <laughs> Let's try that all over again. Good morning, everyone. This is going to be a great lesson this morning. How many of you have ever woken up and your tongue stayed in bed for a few minutes? Um, this morning we have completed Matthew's account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus before the Passion. And some of you may have heard that word, the Passion of Jesus. The passion of Jesus <clears throat> is a term that has to do with his suffering, specifically during the trial of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, you know, that whole little period before the crucifixion and then, of course, the crucifixion. And so now we're getting in to the culmination of why God has sent his son. And some of you may remember, and I don't know what's in the notes. I sometimes don't look at, most of the time I don't look at the outline. Evan does such a good job on that. You know, by the way, if these outlines do help you, do let Evan know. I don't outline these. Uh, you don't want to see my outline. <clears throat> but you remember our first session, this is how we kind of outlined Matthew. I just felt this is the, what the Lord had given me, and that's why I did it this way. The announcement of God's Messiah King in chapters 1 and 2. You remember that, the announcement. The presentation of the Messiah King in chapter 3. Some of you may remember that, John the Baptist, etc. The confrontation. Is this in your notes? Okay. The confrontation of the Messiah King, 4-11. The proclamation of the Messiah King, 12-25. And that's where we ended last week. This morning we are going to talk about the immolation of the Messiah King, 26 to 27. Now, do you know what the word immolation means? Does somebody know what that word immolation means? Say it again. The destruction, that's a good word, the destruction, immolation. The destruction of the Messiah King, obviously that's referring to, you know, it's including the the uh, communion meal, the arrest, and the crucifixion of Jesus, the destruction. And then, of course, the last is the vindication of God's Messiah King, which he's vindicated. You remember, he's vindicated by the resurrection. So this morning, we're transitioning in to what is called the Passion. Now, before I do this, and I typically, I don't, I don't know whether I have ever done it. Maybe I've done it once or twice, but it's not typically what I do. But I will stop for a moment before I continue and, and just say this. Does anyone have any questions because of clarification, because of confusion, or for whatever reason, from last week's lesson? How many of you did not hear? Either you weren't here or you did not get it on tape last week's lesson. Well, you know. You need to do that. You know, you just need to do it. There's certain things that I think we need to do. Because we talked about being saved by works. Now, I'm not going to go recapitulate, reiterate rather, all that 45-minute presentation. But if you were here, or sorry, if you have heard that, are there any questions of clarification? Anyone at all that you needed to ask something about that? I think Andy, during Covenant Group the other night, said that I said, and I'm not disputing that, but that's exactly what happened, that I said there is no distinction between, I think it was, no 
difference or distinction? Which word did I use? Distinction between faith and works. Well, the, the, that, that's somewhat of a misnomer, but there is truth and untruth in it depending on how you talk about it. So true, genuine, biblical faith always, may I repeat that word? Always. May I say it one more time? Always produces true, genuine, biblical, God-centered, God-generated, God-glorifying works in and through us. Now, why do I want to hear an amen? I don't, I'm not looking for personal approbation. I'm a, I'm a teacher, and I need to know whether you as a class are getting what we're saying. I can't, as I said last week, give you a pop test. Well, we can, but no one would ever come to class anymore. I'm not going to that class. So I can't make a judgment on whether or not you're getting this. And so the only way I can do that is to ask some kind of way for a response from you. So you just heard what I said. Now, if you want to write that down, you're going to have to go and get the CD or whatever it is because, you, as you can tell, I didn't read that from anything. Is that clear to everyone? Is there any question? So our salvation was 100% achieved at the cross and purchased for us redemption purchase for us on our behalf by the absolute work of one man, his sinless, perfect obedience even unto death, Philippians 2.8. That's the work that saves us. That's the work that saves us. We are saved by the work of a man. Grace cannot come to us, and we cannot experience God's grace apart from God's activity or His work. Therefore, grace and works within this context are joined, and there's no what do you call it? a disconnection or what word do I want? One is one word, it, one is against the other. Opposition, but there was another word, I can't remember it now. At any rate, so there's no opposition here. If we're using what? If we're using the words biblically. So, is our salvation free? Yes and no. It is not free of God's work at the cross. It is received, it is given to us free only in one essence, free of our self-generated, self-boasting, self-glorifying works. But it is not free of any work in us because our ability to receive the grace of God, John 1, 13, to as many as received Him. Remember that? Our ability to receive the work of God in Christ is our responsive, cooperative 
work in and with the grace of God given to us by faith, in the gift of faith, rather. Do, do you understand this? So, all I'm asking is this. As we as believers speak to one another or we share with others, let us be more accurate in our conversations. Rather than saying to someone, it's a free gift, Steve, and you don't have to do anything, that's not the truth in one sense. And it is the truth in another sense. So, let's clarify our conversations and our sharings. Is this okay? Because if we are gobbledygooked in this, what's going to happen is the devil is going to take advantage of our sloppy understanding, and in that sloppiness, slop us. And when something happens and begins to go awry, bad in your life, which it will, if you don't have the accurate understanding of what God has done and how we have received it and our part in this and our part in continuing in this, we are going to be overcome by the issues of the enemy. Now, when I say overcome, I don't mean we're going to, quote, as people say, lose your salvation. But we will suffer loss and we will experience difficulty in our life in relation to our weak or faulty understanding. Okay? Does everybody okay with this? Because we have a great burden to make sure that the body of Christ is accurate in this. And so, for instance, and it just came to my mind, a, a lawyer just walked into the room. And any lawyer can tell you, David, if you're sloppy in your work, will you achieve your purpose? You have already? No. Yeah. He's not going to. And so, he spends hours, I'm sure, of thinking and creating what terminology and statements, whatever it is that y'all do, and studying and, re and researching. Why? Because the more accurate he is, the more skillful he is, the more apt he is to win his case. Correct? So, when you have a big case, you, 10 minutes, you got the whole thing, right? It takes hours and hours and hours and days of preparation. All of that, and maybe the whole presentation is a short thing. So, that's all I want to say about that. Is, is everything, everything okay? Everybody okay with that? All right. So, from now on, when someone says, our salvation is free of works, uh, hopefully you will say, Let's stop for a moment and you tell me what do you mean by free and what do you mean by works? Correct? And let's have a conversation about that. So now, let's proceed with this, which now I'm sure I won't get through. Chapter 12, uh, 26, we're now, Matthew has now transitioned us into what is called, if you would, the passion of Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished these sayings, what sayings? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then remember the parables. 
of the ten virgins, the parables of the talents, the parables about the, the, uh, the judgment of God in relation to how we responded to one another was how we responding to the Lord Jesus himself. Remember the two verses that I said, you must know these two verses in chapter 25. If you don't know any other two verses in chapter 25, remember these two. Verse 40 said, as much as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brothers or sisters, you have done it unto me. And verse 45 is a negative. And as often as you have not done it unto one of these, my brethren, you have what? Not. So as we have positively served one another in and with and through God's kind of love, we are serving the Lord Jesus because we're manifesting the Father's love in us by the Spirit. And as we are neglecting and refusing, then we are demeaning, we are demeaning and lying about God's love in Christ for us. It's not so much that we are saying something about Jesus himself that he can get over. Get over it. It's that our life in Christ is the, according to God's will and plan, is now the visible manifestation, the image Genesis 126, our life in Christ is the visible manifestation of God the Father's love and of His mercy and of His grace. And the way we live, whether positively according to the love of God or negatively, you know, in however category that works out, we are saying this is God. And that's big to God. It's big. So now we move after these sayings. Now, he's already, he's already given a withering denouncement to the leadership. And so, Jesus now tells his disciples. Now, listen to what he says. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after, and I want you to notice this terminology today because you may not pick it up. And I may give you enough of a hint today to kind of let you know what we're doing next week, although I think this will flow into next week, and it's okay. But I want us to see something critical here. You know that in the, what does he say? What are those next words? You know that in what? Next what? In what? In what? Two days. Now, we think, oh, okay, two days. Okay. All right, two days. It's okay, fine. May I say this? Every word of Scripture is anointed by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of communicating God to us for our blessing. Do you believe that? Yes. So when the Holy Spirit has Jesus say, two days, there's a reason for that. There's a reason it's communicated to us because Jesus said a whole lot of other things that are not communicated to us, correct? I mean, you know, this is a long little process here of going through all this and the meal and so on. We're going to cover it in a few minutes. Why does he say that? Well, there's something coming in the next verses that you need to look at very carefully and compare what others say and what Jesus says, 
and we'll get into that hopefully next week sometime if we ever get out of these two verses. So, again, read the Word, asking the Holy Spirit, reveal yourself and stop me so that I may recognize and meditate on what you just said. And it could be that your reading of the Word today is only two verses. And you didn't get the whole chapter read. But in those two verses, as you read it and allowed the Holy Spirit to flood your soul with the presence and the revelation of who God is in a greater way, that's all that God wanted to do, and that's all we dare do. Let's not get too fast on God. Some of you already known, if I can say this in a good way, God is pokey. How many of you know God is too slow for us? Come on. Come on. He's too slow for us. When we want something, what? He's too slow. <laughs> and there's a reason. Jesus finished these things. He said to the disciples, you know that after two days, underline that, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus now tells his disciples that the Son of Man will be arrested and crucified. But before we go into the next verses, because we look at that, we move along. I just had a stop. I would already, I moved along in the present, in the, what do you call, outlining of the chapter. The Lord stopped me and said, wait, put on the brakes. You missed something. I want to talk about something. Let's go back. Let's go back. And so I had to go back. Had to go back. This phrase, the Son of Man, we have heard 30 times, counting the next one or two, 30 times in Matthew. And every time except, I think, for once or twice, it is Jesus' self-identity. Now, when the Son of God refers to himself in the third person, do you know what I mean by that, the third person? I, you, he, first, second, third persons, English grammar. When he refers to himself in the third person by using this title, it's a title, the Son of Man. What should that say to us? There's something highly significant about this title, and I need to know more about it than maybe a cursory just kind of going through will allow me to do so. So I want to go back and cover some material we've already covered here and there but hopefully do it in a way that will bring a greater illumination and a greater profundity. You know what profundity mean? Profoundness. A greater profundity to this statement. So when we see this statement, the Son of Man, we can say, oh, God, what a revelation. Oh, rather than, okay, the Son of Man. Okay, so what? Because that's how we may do if we're not careful. And we don't want to miss incredible revelation by God. So let's talk about it. First of all, this is Jesus' 
favorite self-revelation. It's in all the Gospels, 30 times in Matthew. Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sin. As the Son of Man, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Listen to the emphasis. He keeps pointing to something when he says the Son of Man. He keeps pointing to something. He could say, I, 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 and he does that on occasions. But he also says the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He's pointing to something. And so we must see and ask, what are you pointing to? What are you emphasizing beyond just yourself? You're saying something about yourself that I need to know. As the Son of Man, Jesus sows the seeds of the Word. And I have references there. Do you see the references? Okay. As the Son of Man, Jesus was delivered up and crucified. We just read that. As the Son of Man, Jesus would be betrayed. As the Son of Man, Jesus is the great judge. We saw that last week or so. As the Son of Man, Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father. You remember Stephen's vision before he was stoned. In fact, that's the vision that caused Stephen to be stoned. When they heard that, they gnashed their teeth and they grabbed him and pulled him out and they picked up stones and they stoned him. When they heard that testimony, because you see, that's the testimony that Satan cannot stand. And yet it is the testimony that God declares. So what is in this? The most compelling revelation that begins to give us some understanding of what this testimony or what this title is all about is found in Mark 14, 61 to 64. Jesus is on trial, remember, before Caiaphas. And again, the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Remember, the Greek Christos is the um, is, is the translation of Messias, which is Messiah in the Hebrew. So they are equivalent terms. Messiah, Christ, two different languages. It's like Abba, Father, you know, cry Abba, Father. Paul is saying to the Roman church or to the Galatian church, I'm not telling you to use one word or better than the other. He's saying to the, uh, to the uh, Arabic, I'm sorry, Aramaic-speaking Jews, you call him Abba. To the Greek-speaking, you call him Pater or Father. That's what he's saying there. He's making the, both languages come together and say, this is whom we're talking about. Not making one better or whatever than the other. This is what he's declaring. Here's your language, Jews, and here's your language, Romans. So, you're the Christ. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, the word one is added, but are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. Ego Amy. Ego Amy. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheepfold. Remember that? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you remember some of these? There were seven of them in John. Seven I am's with a predicate, meaning seven I am statements with a description. And then there's seven I am statements in John's gospel that stand alone. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sin. So what is I am all about? It is the affirmation, and you see it most clearly in John 8, 58. I don't think any of this is in your notes, so whatever. In John 8, 58, before Abraham was, in other words, before Abraham lived, I am. Ego Amy. 
it's a translation of anihu in, in the Old Testament. You see that in Gen, uh, Isaiah 43, 4, and 5. You'll see, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. Jesus says he's declaring himself to be the God of glory in this answer and in these answers and in these statements. He's not just saying something about himself intrinsically. He's saying something about himself cosmically, theologically. He's making a Trinitarian statement about the nature of God himself. That's what's in these statements. He says, I am. And then he says something. And you will see whom? You will see whom? Objective case, object. You will see whom? Whom does he point to as proof? You will see the Son of Man. What? Son of Man doing what? Look at, look at the, the, the material. What is he doing? Sitting where? At the right hand of the mighty one or the authority of God himself. And he is coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? I, can, I won't get past much today. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not sorry. Okay. Listen to what he's saying. First of all, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? When they say the Son of the Blessed, they're making a reference to God himself. God is the Blessed. So what they're asking is, are you the Son of God? Now, in their understanding, they are monotheistic. Do you know what that means? Monotheistic means what? They believe in one God, only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. One God, mono, one theos, God. They are radically monotheistic. And they are living in a world of poly, meaning what? Many gods. Judaism is the only religion until you get this, this false copy, this, uh, what do you call it? Um, when someone makes a false copy, it's a counterfeit called Islam. It's a counterfeit in the 6th century A.D. When Judaism appears on the scene of history, and it appears in Abraham, God has already been there, but he appears in Abraham. Remember, calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 12. Judaism begins, if you, if you would, as a nation in the father of faith, Abraham. And it is the only religion on the earth which is monotheistic. Every other one believes in gods or deities or whatever is all over the place. Correct? Correct? Why is Israel's theology so radically different? Why? Why? It's the truth. Is there any other reason, Andy? It's the truth. Debbie, you don't have to say anything else. What? It's the truth. And so these people, rightly so, will rise or fall on the basis of monotheism. It's their life. It's their God. And they are right in this way. But you see, they didn't have an understanding 
that in the one being of God there exists three equal, distinct, divine persons who each one possesses the fullness of deity in himself, yet not by himself. And the names of these persons are Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we have no right to change any of that because that's how God declares himself now to us. And so in the Old Testament, God is the blessing. So they're asking, are you the son of the blessed. The word son here <clears throat> means intimate relationship. It is not a word that has to do necessarily or automatically with sexual regenerate or generation. The essence of the word is relationship. Are you in an intimate fellowshipping relationship with the son of the blessed? It is this most unique relationship they are asking about. You remember Israel's called God's son. In Exodus 4, he's telling, God is telling Moses what? I'm going to deliver my son. And as we know, God had no sexual relations with a woman in order to produce Israel, right? It was a relational term. And that's how we need, obviously, to see the term the son of God, which we do. So in Jesus' answer, Jesus was saying that in using the title, the Son of Man, he was saying that he is also the divine, unique divine Son of God. This is what he's saying. I'm not only the Son of God, I am the divine Son of God. Because if you remember, they thought perhaps the Messiah is a really great good man, but they did not ascribe divinity to the Messiah. Now, we assume that, but that's a false assumption. We know that, but they didn't know that. And so, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Well, are you the Messiah sent from God, anointed to deliver us? He could have said yes. And that means that he was just a great man, anointed like Moses was, if you would, the Christ, a Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. He was a son of God. Do we see that? Do you see? That's what they were asking. They had no thought about divinity in this. And had Jesus just said, yep, you know, they would have been, man, man, you, you got, they got to lock this guy up. Come on, Chris, this guy's a Lulu. He, we know, or maybe he might be, the, but we're not going to be able to put him to death for blasphemy, Chris, because he's just saying he's the Messiah. And we're not going to put him blasphemy for that because we know he's not a great man, don't you see? I mean, they, they yeah, oh, well, I don't, I won't go down that road. Oh, they're not going to do it. But Jesus doesn't do that. Do you notice that Jesus did not fall into any trap? He entrapped them with the truth. Do you ever notice that Jesus doesn't fall into any man's trap? But as they seek to entrap him, he allows the arms of their entrapment to go around him. And then when they have encircled him, he grabs them with truth and destroys their entrapment and entraps them. Isn't, isn't this right? 
want to make sure we see what's happening here. Otherwise, we miss, I'll use that word again, the profundity of the issue. Jesus is not creating the ire. You know what that means? Eliciting the ire, the anger, the resentment, the opposition of the leaders just because he's doing some miracles. That's bothering them. That's bothering them. But others have come and gone and have done this. Their ire is partly because he is claiming to be the Messiah. But then he has also said some stuff that seems as if he is saying he is also not only the Messiah, but he's what? Also divine. Remember the I am's? Do you, do you remember Jesus? What I said? Especially John 8, 58. Write it down. And they took up stones to kill him. Now, they didn't take up stones, Johnny, just because he was saying something that they didn't agree with the grammar, but they can let it go. He was saying, I am, I'm gonna listen to the way I'm, I'm going to say it. I am a God. That's what he was saying. I am a God. God is God, and I also am what? A God. No, I am a God. That's what he was telling them, Tammy. I am a God. That's what they were hearing. What's wrong with that? It flies in the face of what? Monotheism. And anybody who claims to be a God, you can leave the Messiah stuff off. That's just icing on the cake, Mary. That's just icing. The issue is you're claiming to be a God. You're claiming to be one with God, one with God, remember? A God, with God, another God. We're not talking about Jehovah's Witnesses here, but this is what they are understanding because they haven't yet had the revelation of the Trinity. And if you would, I hate to say this, they were theologically correct in the faultiness of their theology. They were acting according to their faulty theology. Can you grab that? Now, they also had a whole lot of other stuff going on, as we know. But we're talking about the theology of it. So, Jesus would have been okay if he just said, yeah, I'm the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. But he went further than that. He says, and henceforth you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the authority coming on the clouds of, does it say glory? Clouds of heaven. That's it. Tell him. Listen to their response. You see, they heard something that we don't hear, but we need to hear. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemn him as worthy of death. Remember? Are we okay where I am? You hear the response? Kill him. Put him to death. That was a response. Why? What was the reason? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the prophesied 
prophets. Remember? In, there it goes. Come on. Genesis, Acts, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15, 18. Remember Moses said, there's coming the prophet. That's when you read in a couple of the gospel accounts, is he the prophet? That means the prophet that Moses promised who would come after him. The Messiah. The one. Remember the definite article, the. The particular one. Jesus is saying, yes, but I'm more than that. I'm also divine. Ooh. Son of man. What is there about this title that so rattled their cages? Let me go through a little bit of it right now. We'll go into next week, and it's a, it'll be okay. When Jesus used the title, the Son of Man, he was referring to himself as both human and divine. Now, you don't see that in the phrase, the Son of Man in and of itself. It's not stated, it's not meant intrinsically within the context of just the statement disassociated from anything else. The Son of Man just means, hey, you're another man. Have you read Ezekiel? How many times? The Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. And God is talking to Ezekiel. What are you saying? Oh, you're divine? No, he's just saying, hey, man, you're a man, a son born in relation to man. That's who you are. Jesus is using the term, though, quite differently because he had he just said, I am the Son of Man. Oh, okay. Okay. We know you're the Son of Man, and every priest and all the elders could have said what? And we also are what? Each one of us is a what? Son of Man. So, Julio, what's the big deal? You see, Jesus then referred to a revelation about a particular son of man whom the Jews understood as a divine figure but didn't understand how quite it fit. We don't quite get it, but we see it. And you see things in the Word of God, and they don't make sense to you. But you know they're there. And so what happens is within the context of our incredible, infinite knowledge of God and our understanding that surpasses everything, we try and we explain. And you know what we should do? We should do what Paul did in Romans eleven thirty three. That's what we should do. Oh, the depths, what? Both of the wisdom and knowledge or riches of God. God is what? Beyond understanding, inscrutable. We should believe what Isaiah said, what Holy Spirit said in Isaiah 55. I think it's verses 8 and 9. My thoughts ain't your thoughts. My ways are not your oh, For my thoughts are what? Really, 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 really higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. We should also remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. And if you don't mind my paraphrase, and he ain't telling us, Sue, and we ought not to worry about it. Mm 
Because what he's told us, we're okay with, and he gives us understanding. But 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999